This is a Federal News Network podcast. When disaster occurs, the Federal Emergency Management Agency is often the most visible presence. Behind the visible efforts, though, FEMA has a mission support function that ensures the right money, equipment, and people are in place. That work is supervised by my next guest. Eric Lecky is Associate FEMA Administrator for Mission Support and a newly named Fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. He joins me now. Mr. Lecky, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. Great to be with you. And I'm reading from your bio uh, that you provide leadership and direction to achieve business excellence to a team of 1,477 mission support professionals, another 603 disaster reservists, delivering $504.3 million program of requirements in the areas of administrative and real property services, et cetera, et cetera. What do you actually do there as, as deputy administrator? Yeah, Tom, we are essentially the backbone of the agency. We provide all the business administrative services to achieve business excellence here at FEMA in support of the mission. This is your typical human capital work, your procurement, buying of products and services, IT and cybersecurity, facilities, safety and health, psychological support services, security and so on. It's the machine that keeps the agency running in the background to ensure that we're able to provide the services to disaster survivors in their time of need. And I imagine one of the most difficult challenges you have is predicting requirements needs for a given year because you have no idea how much FEMA will have to respond. Yeah, Tom, that's absolutely right. And so it's very critical that we're at the table at all times in the planning phase in advance of any activity so that we're able to project and to plan alongside of our operational partners what the needs will be in buying through our advanced disaster contracts and ensuring that we've got a forward-leaning human capital posture to support not just our steady state, but our local hiring to ensure that our IT and other mission enablers are in place that allow our partners as well as our agency to assist disaster survivors when they need it, which is not always predictable. It's not always something that we know it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. So we've got to be there and be at the ready alongside of our operational partners. And in providing appropriated funds, do you find that Congress allows FEMA to have a certain contingency level of funding, which is not something they generally like to have with agencies? But with FEMA, it seems almost like a necessity. Yeah, it is a necessity. And I'll state from the front that we maintain a good relationship with our appropriators, as well as our oversight committees in Congress, as well as OMB, so that we're constantly managing our resources to ensure that we've got what we need when we need it. And that as additional disasters occur in any particular given season, we're prepared with the resources we need at the forefront and that that doesn't become an obstacle in a response or certainly a long-term recovery. And just a detail question, a lot of federal agencies detail people to help out FEMA for the duration of a disaster presence. Are those people paid by their home agencies or does FEMA have to temporarily take them on the payroll? Well, it depends on the arrangement, and you're absolutely right, whether it's the surge capacity force across the Department of Homeland Security or other interagency agreements with other federal partners and agencies, or whether it's through our emergency management exchange programs where we send our professionals to the states or the states send their professionals to FEMA, we work out the arrangement on who is paying what piece of the bill as part of that process. Certainly, we do do reimbursables. That is part of our structure 
structure, but it really does depend on the function. It depends on the purpose and why we're doing what we're doing. That will ultimately determine from where we pay the bill. And just briefly describe the strategy for stockpiling supplies versus buying what is needed for a particular situation, because stockpiles have a way of turning up no good anymore by the time you sometimes open the closet. Yeah, no, we do both. We certainly make sure that we've got our logistics warehouses strategically positioned across the United States in our territories so that we've got what we need when we need it from food, water, all the way down to uh, blue sheeting for roof work. But we also do on-demand buy. We maintain steady advanced contracts. We're constantly in touch with our vendors and our suppliers so that we understand what the supply chain looks like, not just in terms of their ability to manufacture and produce, but our ability to get it in the logistics network and on the ground where we need it. We are speaking with Eric Leckie. He is Associate Administrator for Mission Support at FEMA and a new NAPA fellow. And let's talk about you a little bit since you are a NAPA fellow. Tell us about briefly your career and your senior executive service member. What's it like working kind of in the background for an agency that's often so highly visible with the administrator standing in the wind with a microphone and blue tarp in the background and all of that? Tom, it's a privilege. Let me say that to work at FEMA and to be part of this mission where we help people in their most critical time of need is a high honor. I have been working in and for or as a primarily client uh, in the Department of Homeland Security for the last 20 years. Uh, I came to Washington shortly after 9-11. I was very intrigued by the idea of Homeland Security started off at the Office of Homeland Security and then the Homeland Security Council at the White House before then going to work for the Secretary of Homeland Security. And my career has really gone on since then. I've been with FEMA since 2011. I've enjoyed every minute of it. First as the Chief Privacy Officer here for a number of years, then as the Deputy Chief Administrative Officer, and then Deputy Associate, now Associate Administrator. So largely the management administration functions of the agency ensuring that we're providing what our partners and our stakeholders need, those who we consider our customers here at the agency and in the interagency community to be successful in our operations. I was going to say there's a big interagency cooperative element to what you do. So in some sense, you're a diplomat. Very much so. Interagency partnerships, our partnerships with our state, local, tribal, and territorial partners is critical to what we do. We certainly bring people to the mission We bring money, we bring capability, but those partnerships are absolutely critical and pivotal in all that we do. Those and also the contractual arrangements with industry, because, yes, there's a legal contractual element to it, but there's also a partnership element to it for the reality of dealing, isn't there? Tremendous partnership. We couldn't do it without the private sector. We have a National Business Emergency Operations Center here that operates within our Office of Response and Recovery. And we're forward-leaning 365 days with those partners and those vendors and those private sector enablers, just as we are with our state, local, tribal, and territorial partners. You're right, we couldn't do it without them. We know that. They know that. Our relationship reflects that. And we spend a great deal of time in the background year-round, not just managing those relationships, but nurturing them, making sure that they are with us in our thinking on where we're going and what we need to do so that when we reach the point in time when we need to do it, sometimes with little to no notice, they're prepared, we're prepared, and we can execute on behalf of the American people. So really supply chain and logistics 
challenges that the country might be going through at a given moment are also FEMA challenges then? They are. They are. They're absolutely FEMA challenges, and they're things that we have to work through no matter what the supply chain network looks like, no matter what the available commodity situation looks like. It's our job to work with our partners to find them and to get them where we need them to be. That's not always easy. We saw that during the COVID response where we got into a pandemic very quickly and we had a very critical need to get resources fast. And I think that's where FEMA brought its strength to the table, along with our federal and state partners. And do you ever get a chance to get out into the field and just see all of the back office and planning work in action? I do. Tom, I just spent a couple of weeks ago, three or four days in Florida, the Fort Myers area uh, after Ian. I try to make that a point after every major storm to get on the ground to make sure that our team has what they need, that we're delivering to our customers in the way that they expect us to. As an agency, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So it's got to be all hands on deck at a time like that. And I consider myself to be part of that. Now you are a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. What do you plan there? Do you have any assignments yet? What will be your area, do you think, of contribution there? I'm really excited about this opportunity to contribute to the future of public administration. The grand challenges of public administration really do lay out a vision for the future and where we as a profession need to go. In fact, I was just inducted last week. I've just started with the organization in this collateral duty. I plan to work on a number of different assignments and opportunities. I can see a future potential in the profession of public administration and outlining the future and the path there, uh, all the way down to some of the specific initiatives underway as it relates to resilience in communities uh, and ensuring that they have and are planning for what is very clearly an evolving climate situation that everyone needs to be prepared for. Eric Leckie is Associate Administrator for Mission Support at FEMA and a new NAPA fellow. Congratulations on that, and thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for the opportunity. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. 
and his stories, right? And his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took uh, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.